Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. And now if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, and I know some first and second graders have some Bibles, so if they're in the room, I want you to turn to the very first chapter of the book of Acts. It's in the New Testament. Turn around and have somebody help you find it if you'd like to to follow along with us. And it is the very first chapter, and we're going to begin reading in verse 6. Listen now for these words. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Lord, is, is this the time? Is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the reading of the sacred word. It's reliable and it can be trusted. Would you go to the Lord in a moment of prayer with me now? Come, Holy Spirit, our hearts inspire and fill us with your holy fire. For if you are with us, then nothing else matters. But if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So, this Thursday, we do a thing. I asked for Jackson's permission today to tell you a little bit about it. This Thursday, we move our second born, our last born, into college. And we will start the clock on what some of you people call empty nest. Some of you have made that journey, some of you are making that journey, and some of you will make that journey journey and we did it once we moved my son the elder into college and I told you about that it was tough got through it and so there could be nothing of a surprise to what's expected on Thursday it'll all go swimmingly right except 
The other day, I come up from downstairs in our basement and we have this staircase and on the staircase, I made the mistake years ago of putting pictures of them in their basketball shirt that draped below their knees of their first time going to Disney World, of beach vacations when they could have been washed out to sea, they were so small. And walking up that staircase, something triggered in me. I didn't see it coming. And this wall of memory became like this avalanche that came down on top of me. And I had to go outside for a little while on my back porch where I spend considerable amount of time with Jesus. And I cried like a three-year-old for about an hour and a half. And I couldn't find the faucet. I couldn't turn it off. And I... And I shared things with God that, that I had shared just a couple of years ago, and yet it felt all so real again. It occurred to me, this is, you know, the price that we pay for loving deeply, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And then in that time together, we, he, he reminded me of something that he has reminded me of again and again and again throughout the journey that I have made with him thus far. There is a difference between losing and loosing. There is a difference between losing and loosing. To lose something implies that you had a thing and it was yours, a possession to be owned, and, and then you, you lose it. It's now not yours. It's now gone. It's now no longer with you. You can lose a set of keys. If you're not diligent on your payments, you could lose a car. You could lose a house. Or more soberingly, you can lose your health. You can lose mobility. You can lose your eyesight. You can lose your hearing. I said you can lose your hearing. <laughs> and when we lose something, when we have something that is our own and then we lose it, we go through a thing that has a name and the name is grief. And grief has some predictable stages that you go through, the shock, the denial, the anger, the questioning, and then ultimately the acceptance of that thing that you have now lost. And it's okay. Anybody who has ever loved and lost something understands that in Christ it's okay because there's always more grace than grief. There's always more grace than grief. But there is a difference between losing something and loosing something. When you loose something, it means there was a time when the thing was in your hand and, and, and it really was never yours to own as much as it was yours to love and cultivate and nurture and develop and then in letting it go, in loosing it, what you're doing is confessing the reality that if I don't loose this thing, it cannot become what God has intended it to become if it remains in my hand. Jesus said, 
Jesus said, you can have a seed, a seed in your hand. And if you hold the seed in your hand with a tight grip and that's all you do with it, it's just going to remain a seed. But if you can find the faith to just, you know, kind of loose it, it will fall. Yeah. But then it will become something that it could have never become if it remained in your hand. And the longer that I walk with Jesus, the more... Firmly, I believe this truth that walking by faith is about learning to hold all of life with a loose grip. I think this may be part of what the disciples are experiencing in that text that I just read a moment Ago. They had spent the last 40 days with Jesus. They thought everything was all over because they saw him crucified. They saw him crushed to earth, life removed from him. And all of their despair welled up within a single moment and in a single phrase, it is finished. But on the third day, his resurrection demonstrated to them it's only just begun. And so for the past 40 days, according to the earlier part of chapter 1 in the book of Acts, Jesus presented himself to these disciples with very convincing proofs and signs. And he spoke, the text says, about the kingdom of God. That there is this way in which God desires to reign regally in the hearts of every human being where the domain has no political boundaries. There are no terrestrial or geographical border states. That the reign of God is, well, it's a domain and a rule that can sweep into every heart. And last week we talked about the geography of the book of Acts as it moves from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth is meant to reflect the geography of the heart because the more we walk with Christ, the more we hold our life with a loose grip and recognize that there is no domain in me that does not already belong to him. And so here they are. And we opened up the text with this amazing opening word. They said to him in these words, chapter one, verse six. So, when they had come together, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, everything was moving toward this moment. Everything that they had lived for and sacrificed for had moved them to this point in time. And now he's been talking about the kingdom of God for 40 days, so they must assume, oh, this is it. He's gonna set this thing up right here, right here among us. And they ask him, is this when you return the kingdom to Israel? But hidden in the tones of the question is a subtle suggestion, an assumption. Because what they have done is they've reached way back before the crucifixion and they've tugged forward with a very tight grip a vision and a version of a vision of what it even means to be the kingdom. This is certainly going to be the time when you set your kingdom up and we'll, we'll set the tribes up and we'll push back Rome and, and militaristically, then you will be our Messiah and we will be your people. And yet, that's what we always do, isn't it? We miss it because when we are confronted with something brand new that God is attempting to do, what we do instinctively is we reach back to the familiar 
to the way that we saw God behaving years ago and we tug it forward and assume that God will behave now in the way that God behaved then. And if it's different than the way God behaved then, or if there's a different way that God is trying to move in us now, we don't recognize it. It's like Mary at the resurrection and she's standing in the garden at the empty tomb and she hears what she thinks is the gardener and the gardener says, Mary. And she turns and sees that it's the risen Jesus and she calls out, Rabbi, it's you. And she clings to him and, and Jesus has that awkward phrase, stop clinging to me. Meaning you just saw me and called me Rabbi, but I'm way more than a Rabbi right now. I am the resurrected king and I can be in you and for you more than you can possibly imagine, but you have to let go and stop clinging to the version of me that you once knew. It's like when your family goes on vacation and from time to time you get really brave and you have the whole family go on vacation. You know what I mean? Like cousins and aunts and uncles and in-laws and outlaws and you go to vacation and there's always that one person who, who wants to recreate what happened years ago. And now maybe you're doing vacation and now the children have, have brought fiancés or spouses and maybe they have their own children. But there's that one person in your family who says, you know what, tonight everybody, we're going someplace really special for dinner. And with bated breath, everyone leans in, where are we going? And they say, Shoney's. <laughs> you like Shoney's, remember? I mean, you were this, you love their chocolate cake. We're going to, right? I mean, silly example, but right. So when you're confronted with a new reality, what we tend to do instinctively is reach back and grab the thing that gave us confidence before and tug it forward and hold on to it with the grip of white knuckles. But there's a difference between losing and loosing. Churches do that too. Churches all over the world now, especially in our nation, post-pandemic, are afraid. Because the post-pandemic church looks and feels different. And maybe instead of seeing it as a collapse of something that was so beloved, what if there is something happening now that could not have happened had we not gone through what I'm calling these days the recent unpleasantness? And what if God attempting to do a new thing means that we have to somehow loosen the grip with which we embrace our faith and our church? So, so Jesus responds to them with these words. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their side. Can you imagine the shock? This was the moment they were all waiting for. And just as they're speaking and organizing, and, and I'm, I'm sure that they've begun organizing, that, you know, Lord will enthrone you. First, we'll set up your enthrone, your enthronement ceremony that'll you know, involve a committee, and we'll have a party planning committee that, that is in charge of celebrating your enthronement. Then we'll organize the 12 tribes, and then we'll organize a strategy by which we push Rome back. And while they're talking, he begins to ascend out of their sight. As if, whoa, whoa, <laughs> where are you going? And, and, and right there, they experience the thing that you and I experience. 
of all of the things that we must learn to hold loosely in our life, the thing that we must hold most loosely in this life is our assumptions about how God works and can work. Because if we hold on with kind of a a kung fu grip to the way that God used to work, we will never see the ways that God desires to work even now. Yeah. Do you remember January the 28th, 1986? 11.38 in the morning, school kids all across America watched as the space shuttle Challenger took off from its landing pad in central Florida. We were very excited to watch and 93 seconds into the flight, it exploded. It it left the world's smartest engineers baffled as to what had happened. We would only learn many days or weeks later what had happened. And and we recognized in that moment, right before our eyes, that the whole crew, including a teacher, Krista McAuliffe, remember, had lost their their lives. Well, that night, President Reagan had planned on speaking the, the, the State of the Union. He delayed it for a week and instead addressed the nation from his Oval Office. I will never forget that speech around 14 years old, and I'm watching him. And maybe it was one of the first times I recognized how powerful words can be used to bring strength and comfort and and assurance to a people, right? But he borrowed the line from a popular poem called High Flight. The author of the poem was uh, John Gillespie McGee. Toward the end of his speech, these were his words. The crew of the space shuttle Challenger honored us by the way, by the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Is this part of how the disciples felt as they they see the one who who had embraced them and whom they had embraced and, and just as they were laying all their hopes on the mount there at Olivet, he slips out of their sight and slips the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God, the only problem was this person was the face of God. And every great story that we find in the Gospels that demonstrate Jesus as a human being, demonstrate his capacity from birth through resurrection, his capacity to slip the surly bonds of earth, this face of God. So he's three years old and an evil king decides to slaughter all of the three-year-olds and under in his village. But Joseph has a dream that it's going to happen and he takes Jesus and they escape to Egypt. And he slips the surly bonds of imperial power 
and control that would threaten to undermine his authority as the king of the universe. He's 12 years old and his parents can't find him. He's in the temple and he's learning and he's teaching and he's speaking and questions and answers and they come to him and he says, did you not know that I would be in my father's house? And with that answer, he slips the surly bonds of parental expectations. And Joseph and Mary learned the hard way that there is a difference between losing and loosing. So one day he's an adult and and the family thinks that he's lost his mind and there's rumors going around. He's talking about exorcisms and demons and people think that he's gone crazy. And the family's a little bit embarrassed and they go seek to find him and bring him home so they don't embarrass the family. And so he's teaching in this home and somebody says, your mother and your brothers are calling for you. And he says, well, who are my mother and brothers? My mother and brothers are they who perceive the will of God and do it. And with that answer, he slips the surly bonds of every tribal definition of what it means to actually be in this thing that we call the family of God. So he's tempted and slips the surly bonds of temptation to stroke his own ego and to build an image or build up false securities or, or to take control and exercise power over others. In his first sermon. I told you about that last week. He uses a couple of sermon illustrations that make everybody in the room mad. I've never done that. I don't know what that feels like. So they got so mad because he said, you know, God, he uses two stories in their history where God goes around Israel and uses people outside of Israel of other religions and other faiths and other ethnicities to do God's will. And they're so upset that they take him to the brow of the hill and they try to throw him over the hill. But the text says that he slipped out from the midst of them. He slipped the surly bonds of theological constricting orthodoxy that would choke out the spirit that is attempting to do something new. They bring him a woman caught in adultery and they test him. The law of Moses says to do this with her. What do you say? And he knows it's a test and he says, Those who are without sin cast the first stone. And with that, he slips the surly bonds of theological titles and labels and tags. Because if he were to answer one way, well, he would be a heretic. If he answered another way, he'd be another kind of heretic. But he slipped the surly bonds of their own labels. They bring him a coin and they say, is it right to to render to Caesar taxes? Should we pay the emperor taxes? And he says, well, give to Caesar the things that bear the image of Caesar, but give to God the things that bear the image of God. And with that answer, he slips the surly bonds of political entrapment and punditry. But could there be any better example than the resurrection itself in which he slips the surly bonds of death and despair? See, here's the problem, my sisters and brothers. If we don't teach our first and second graders and third graders how to pursue Jesus with a loose grip of expectation, if we don't teach them now how to grow up expecting to be surprised by God, then here's what's gonna happen. They will come into adulthood and face their first real crisis And because we have only taught them to hold on with a kind of rigid interpretation of how God moves, now everything falls apart and they don't know what to do with it. 
Because that's what we do, you know. We hold on with both hands. When what's really needed is a loose grip. Because when you loosen the grip you have on your assumptions about God, it puts you in a posture where both hands are open to receive from God something that God intends for your good. So, he slips out of their midst to take his place on the throne of the universe. But not just the throne in heaven, the throne of every heart who yields itself to him. If you really want to know what happens at the ascension, it's as if humankind is given the opportunity to open our hands and receive Christ in ways we have never received him before. Now, I have uh, long respected the work of uh, Dr. Barbara Brown Taylor, one of the best preachers I've ever heard in my life. In her book, Gospel Medicine, she talks about the ascension. And her words are so beautiful that I simply want to share them with you so that you know the power of what's possible when we hold with a loose grip our expectation. Listen to what she says. In speaking of the ascension, she writes, Men of Galilee, what? Why do you stand looking up toward heaven? That is what the two men in white robes said to the disciples on the Mount of Olivet, called Olivet. Luke calls them men in white robes anyway, so as to not scare anyone, but you can bet your last nickel they were angels. Angels sent to remind God's friends that if they wanted to see him again, it was no use looking up. Better they should look around instead, at each other, at the world, at the ordinary people in their ordinary lives because that was where they were most likely to find him. Not where they used to know them, know him, but the new way. Not in his own body, but in their bodies. The risen, the ascended Lord, who was no longer anywhere on earth so that he could be everywhere instead. No one standing around watching them that day could have guessed what an outstanding thing had happened. When they, when they stopped looking into the sky and looked at each other instead, everything changed. On the surface, it was, it was not a great moment. Eleven abandoned disciples with nothing to show for all their following. But in the days and years to come, it would become apparent what had happened to them. With nothing but a promise and a prayer, those eleven people consented to become the church and nothing was ever the same beginning even with them. The followers became leaders. The listeners became preachers. The converts became missionaries. The healed became healers. The disciples became apostles, witnesses of the risen Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit, and nothing was ever the same again. That probably was not the way they would have planned it, nor would we. If they had it their way, or ours, 
They probably would have tied Jesus up so that they could not have let him slip away, so that they would have a place to predictably find him whenever they needed. Only that's not what happened. He went away. He was taken away. And they stood looking up toward heaven. Then they stopped looking up toward heaven. And they looked at each other instead. And they got on with the business of being the church. And once they did that, surprising things began to happen. They began to say things that sounded like him. And they began to do things that they had never seen anyone else do but him. They became brave and capable and wise. Whenever two or three of them would gather together, it always seemed as if there was someone else in the room. A strong, abiding presence as available to them as bread and wine, as familiar to them as their own faces. It was almost, best line, it was almost as if he had not ascended but exploded so that all the holiness that was once concentrated in him alone flew everywhere, flew far and flew wide so that the seeds of heaven were sown in all the fields of the earth. So that the seeds of heaven were sown in all the fields of the earth, including the field of your own heart. Beloved, I know it's not easy. The walk of faith never is. But if we can learn to hold with a loose grip our expectations of God's ways, then God will surprise us by calling us into new fields where there is planted the seeds of the kingdom.